Chapter Two of Where the Path Breaks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Where the Path Breaks by Captain Charles de Crespigny. Chapter Two. Hours or years later, he waked up with a start and stared at the light. It was daylight, and he was in an immense room. It seemed big enough for a theater. Perhaps it was a theater. The walls had red panels painted on them, and on each panel one or two cupids danced and threw flowers, repulsive, stout cupids. The ceiling was very far up above his eyes, and there was a dome in the center. From this dome depended a huge crystal chandelier like a bulbous stalactite. There were a great many high windows, with panes here and there opened for ventilation. The windows had no curtains, and the room had no furniture except beds, beds, endless rows of beds, surely hundreds of beds. He lay in one of these. All were occupied. He could see heads of men whose bodies looked extraordinarily flat. On some of the heads were bandages. Others were shaved, so that they appeared quite bald. They were very pale heads in the bleak, grayish light filtering dimly through the high windows. A number of bunks were hidden by screens. He wished dully that he had this privacy, but his narrow bed had been given no such protection. A man was slowly walking down an aisle between rows of narrow cots, all exactly alike. Beside the man, who had a remarkably large head with a shock of rough, straw-colored hair, was a woman dressed as a nurse. The newly awakened one knew she was a nurse, though she was not dressed in the costume familiar to him in some vague past. There were many in the room wearing the same sort of cap and apron and prim gown that she wore, young women, middle-aged women, old women. They had kind faces, but the watcher saw no beautiful ones. Not that he cared for that or anything. He had not been awake long when a big girl came towards him, paused, peered, and went away again. She stopped the nurse who walked with the shock-headed man and spoke to her. The woman's cap and the man's tousled hair turned from the direction they had been taking and approached his bed. They bent over it, and he gazed up stupidly at their faces. The shock-headed man had a beard even lighter than his hair. He smoothed it with a white, strong-looking hand, a capable hand, the hand of the born surgeon. The woman had hard features, but soft eyes, wistful and pathetic. "'You see, he is getting along finely,' she said to her companion. "'I think we shall have no more trouble with him now.' The man in bed remembered that he had heard her voice before, and that she had spoken German then, as now. He did not wonder this time why he understood what she said, though the language was not his own. He remembered that he had learned German when he was a boy, and had hated learning it because of the verbs. "'How do you feel?' the surgeon inquired, in English. The man in bed tried to answer. 
his voice came in a weak whisper. This surprised him and made him ashamed. "'Very well,' he heard himself say, as he had seemed to hear himself speak in the dream which was gone now, far away, out of reach. "'Good,' said the surgeon. "'Can you tell me your name?' The sick man thought for a moment, and the question went echoing through his brain as a voice calling one who is absent echoes through a deserted house. Knowledge of his helplessness brought a sense of physical disintegration, as if the marrow of his bones was melting. "'Never mind,' the shock-headed surgeon said, in a quiet, reassuring tone. "'It's all right. You'll remember by and by, when you're stronger. Don't worry about yourself. I've performed an operation on you, which is known as trepanning. That was some days ago.' It has been a success, but we will let you rest a while longer before we bother you with questions. The only thing is, the sooner we learn your name, the sooner we can take steps to let your people hear that you're alive. It's a long time since you were wounded, eight months. We couldn't operate on your head till now. There were too many other things to mend about you. Somebody must be anxious. Go to sleep again when you've had your food, and perhaps the past will all come back to your mind. But if it doesn't, don't make an effort. That will do you harm. The sick man expressed his thanks with the faint ghost of a smile. When the nurse had fed him with warm liquid, which he drank through a tube without lifting his bandaged head from the pillow, he closed his eyes and tried to find his way into the dream again but the door of the dream was shut. He could see only the face of the girl. She alone remained to him, as if she had lingered and found herself locked out when the dream door shut. She had no name, and he had none. But that seemed to be of little importance. It was easy to obey the surgeon and not make an effort. The difficult thing would have been to struggle toward any end, he felt that to do so would shatter his brain. And as he was very sure nobody cared what had become of him, there was no need. Why he was so sure of this, he could not tell. But something inside him, which remembered things he had forgotten, was absolutely sure. How long his lethargy of mind and body lasted, he did not know. Days faded grayly into nights, and nights brightened grayly into days. Neither the surgeon nor the two nurses who had charge of him asked further questions. He took no real interest in anything except the effort to find his way back into the lost dream, which he could never do, and sometimes even the beloved face was blotted out. But at last the objective began to dominate the subjective in the man, he gave a little thought to his surroundings. He noticed his neighbors who occupied the beds near him, and listened dully when they talked to the nurses. They were all Germans. One day he asked the nurse with the patient eyes if there were any other Englishmen besides himself in her charge. And as he spoke the word with confidence which he could not analyze, it sent a faint thrill through his veins a sense of unity with something, 
Englishman. He was an Englishman. He had to speak in German, for the nurse had no other language. Oddly enough, it seemed easy to make her understand. "'We had four Englishmen with you when you came,' she replied. "'They are gone now.' He understood that they were dead, and that she did not like to tell him so. He smiled faintly, but asked no more questions then. Next, he wanted to know where the hospital was, and how long he had been in it. "'You are in Brussels,' the nurse told him. "'This used to be a restaurant. All the hospitals were full. You have been here only a few weeks, but we had heard of you, for yours was a wonderful case. Many doctors have talked about it. Just before your operation, you came to us. You were brought to Herr Dr. Schwartz for that. He is a great man for the brain. You were lucky to have him to operate. It was thought you might be an officer, because you spoke both German and French when you didn't know what you were saying. A bit of bone pressed on the brain. Your head had been hurt. And you had many other wounds, which another great surgeon had cured, when everyone else said you would surely die. That was why they waited so long before operating on your brain. You had suffered so much already. You had to grow strong after what you had gone through and get over the nerve shock, which was worst of all. "'Let me see. How long did Dr. Schwartz tell me it was before they operated?' he asked. Eight months,' the nurse answered reluctantly, as if she feared to excite him yet saw no real reason why, now that he was getting well, he might not hear all the truth about himself. Besides, it might help him to remember the past. She knew that Dr. Schwartz was anxious for him to do so now. He had always been an extremely interesting and rather mysterious case, sent from a distance by a brother surgeon to Schwartz, and especially recommended to his attention. Eight months the woman repeated. I think you were wounded in some battle early in August. We have the record that came from the first hospital where you were. Now it is the 15th of April. Eight months, the man counted dreamily with his fingers. Why don't they know whether or not I was an officer? It was like this, the nurse explained, with her stolid yet kindly and truthful look. It was like this. Your cavalry and our cavalry fought. That is the account we have, though it is not very clear. You were getting the better of us, but our artillery came up and our uhlans were ordered to retreat. When they were safely out of the way, your lancers were shelled. I think they were cut to pieces. Nobody on either side could get at the dead and wounded for days. When they did go to help the living, it was our Germans who went. Most of the English were killed. You and the others who lived, unless a few escaped, were brought to a hospital of ours, in the north of France. Our soldiers would not do such a thing, so it must have been prowling people, thieves, who stripped off your clothes. One reason why our doctors thought you might be an officer, even before you spoke, 
was because the little finger of your left hand had been partly cut off. It had been done with a knife. That seemed as if you must have worn a valuable ring, so tight it couldn't be got off in a hurry. "'My mother's ring,' muttered the man. The words spoke themselves. Again, it was not he who remembered, but something which seemed to be separate and independent, hiding inside him, though not in his brain. It knew all about him, but would not give up the secret. Impishly, it threw out a sop of knowledge now and then, just as it pleased. The nurse tried to encourage this something to go on, but it would not be coaxed. When she repeated the conversation to Schwartz afterwards, however, he said, "'That's encouraging. Don't press him too much. Let body and brain recover tone. Then we'll try more suggestions. It's the most interesting case we've had.' "'What is it to me that he's friend or enemy? Nothing. He's a man. I shall think of a way to set up the right vibrations.' The way he thought of was to commandeer a bundle of English papers which had been passing from hand to hand in Brussels. These papers had been smuggled into the town by a German who had escaped from a concentration camp in England. He was a doctor and had got into Belgium through Holland. Such newspapers as he had were very old ones, but that did not matter, because the man in whom Schwartz, the surgeon, was interested had lost touch with the world since a day soon after the breaking out of war. He must have been among the first troops sent over from England to France, and rushed straight to the front. For a few days he had been very silent, asking no questions. He seemed always to be thinking. By Schwartz's orders he was left alone. Then one morning he was surprised by the news that he was well enough to sit up. When he had been propped with pillows, the nurse he liked best, the one with the hard features and soft eyes, slipped a roll of dilapidated newspapers under the listless hands that lay on the turned-over sheet. "'English,' she said, and saw that his eyes brightened. His left hand, with a tell-tale mutilated finger, began painfully to open out the heavy roll. He could not help much with the other hand, for his right arm had been so injured that it had been strapped to his side for weeks, and the muscles had withered. They would recover tone and the arm its strength, Schwartz prophesied, but he was only just beginning again to use his right hand. This was the first time he had read anything except the notices posted up on the hospital walls which forbade loud talking and other offenses. To see the illustrated London news and the Daily Mail and the Chronicle, dated on days of September, made him feel more than ever that he had died and come back to earth on sufferance as a ghost. For him there had been no autumn nor winter. The world had ended on a hot night in August. There had been summer and then blackness. Now it was spring. September 10th, September 11th, September 13th. The Illustrated London News lay on top. He laid back the cover. There was a battle scene on the first page. 
It looked vaguely familiar. British lancers and helmeted German uhlans were fighting furiously together. Apparently it was night. The background was lit by flames from a burning village. It was an impressionist effect, well presented. The man felt very tired and old as he looked at the picture. Pains throbbed through his head and body and limbs, reminding him of each wound now healed. He turned over the page and several others. Near the middle of the paper he opened to one entirely given up to small photographs of officers. "'Dead on the field of honor,' he read. Under each portrait were a few lines of fine print. He began with the left-hand side at the top. Faces of strangers. Then two he recognized with a leap of the heart. One had been an acquaintance, one an old friend. Their names rushed back to him, as if spoken by their own voices, even before he had time to read. Human interests surged round him as he lay, everyday interests of life as he had laid it down. Dear old Charlie Vance, dead, and Willoughby. A photograph in the middle of the page seemed to tear itself from the paper and jump at his eyes. It was larger than the others grouped round it. "'Good God!' broke from his lips. He glanced around, startled. He was afraid that he had screamed the words. But evidently he had not made any sound. No one was noticing him. Most of the men nearby, all surgical cases, were resting quietly. Several nurses were talking at a distance, their broad, reliable backs turned his way. It was his own photograph he was looking at, the face of the ugly man he had seen in the lost dream, as in a dim mirror. Underneath was a name. He would know, now, his own name and the rest. All his blood seemed to pour away from his heart. A queer mist swam before his eyes. He tried to wink it away, but could not, and had to wait till it faded, leaving a slow shower of silver sparks. Killed in action on the night of August 18th, Sir John Denon, 16th Baronet, Captain, Blank Lancers, aged 32. See paragraph on following page. The man turned the leaf over. There was the paragraph. Captain Sir John Richard Stuart Denon, killed in the fatal night fighting near blank, where his regiment was caught by the enemy's artillery fire in a wood, was a well-known figure in the world. It will be remembered that on the death of his uncle, Sir Stuart Denon, from whom the title passed to him, the unentailed estates were left by will to a distant cousin and favorite of the late baronet. Sir John was advised by his friends to contest the will, but refused to do so, saying his uncle had every right to dispose of his property as he chose. This generosity was considered quixotic, but had a romantic reward a few months later when an aunt of the new baronet's mother bequeathed him one of the most beautiful and historic of the ancient black-and-white houses in Cheshire, 
Gorston Old Hall, and half a million pounds. On receiving this windfall of fortune, which was entirely unexpected, it will be recalled that Sir John resigned from the army, he being at the time a first lieutenant in the something Lancers. Two years later, on the outbreak of the war, he at once offered his services, which were accepted, and he was given a captaincy in his old regiment, leaving for the front with the first of our expeditionary force, and he was, unhappily, also among the first to fall. On the day of his departure, Sir John was quietly married at his own village church in Gorston, Cheshire, to Miss Barbara Fay of California, USA, who is thus left a widow without having been a wife. Everything he possessed, including Gorston Old Hall, passes by the will of the deceased officer to his widow. As Miss Fay, Lady Denon was considered one of the most beautiful American girls ever presented to their majesties, she having made her debut at an early court in the spring of 1913, or a little over a year before her wedding and widowhood. The mother of Lady Denon, though married to an American professor of Egyptology who died some years ago, has English blood in her veins, and is a near relative of Captain Trevor Darcy of the blank Gurkhas, now on the way to France with his gallant regiment. Captain Darcy's photograph, taken with his men at the time of the Derber, appears on the following page, also that of the newly widowed Lady Denon. In the battle where Captain Sir John Denon met his death, he greatly distinguished himself by gallant conduct, and to him would have been due a signal success, had not the German artillery rescued the defeated Uhlans and followed up their flight with a withering fire. Sir John succeeded in saving the life of his first lieutenant, the Honorable Eric Mantell, who was one of the few to escape this massacre, and who had the sad privilege of identifying his preserver's mutilated body on the battlefield. Sir Eric had recovered sufficiently from his wounds to be present at the funeral, the remains of the dead hero having after some unavoidable delay been brought to England and buried in Gorston Churchyard. Had Sir John lived, it is said that he would have been recommended for the Victoria Cross. The man who had died and been buried, whose body had been identified by his friend and taken home, fell back on the thin hospital pillow and closed his eyes. He felt as if he had come to a blank wall, stumbled against it, and fallen. Then, suddenly, he realized that by turning over a page, he could see her face, the face of his wife. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline